Good evening, good day, everybody around the world. Uh, I'm very, very, very happy to see so many of you uh, joining us once again for our Thursday uh, session. And uh, today we want to talk about the origins of the Tibetans, the Pipas. And we want to uh, go into the myth, the origin stories, and um, compare it with uh, various anthropological theories uh, presented by our guest speaker, Rainer Langela, who is uh, currently zooming in from um, Vienna, Austria, where he is a researcher at the Institute for the Cultural and Intellectual History of Asia at the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Um, his general research focuses on the historical ethnography um, of the Tibetan Plateau and his PhD dissertation centers on post-imperial clan genealogies, especially the Lang clan, if I'm not mistaken. Rainier, start your screen share and uh, take it away. All right, so yeah, uh, <clears throat> thanks to everybody for, for joining. I'm happy to see so many uh, familiar and some unfamiliar faces as well. So today I will reflect a little bit on uh, the role that Buddhism played in formulating and sustaining and promoting notions of Tibetan identity. So every time I say Tibetan, you can imagine square quotes, uh, scare quotes, which reflects Tibetan purpa or purmi, etc. cetera. Um, the period I will roughly cover uh, starts from the later spread of the Dharma, the so-called Chita, and runs on until approximately the beginning of the 20th century, so when modern Tibetan nationalism is considered to have taken off. Uh, various authors have already and rightly pointed out the relevance of Buddhist ethnogenetic myths from especially the 12th, 11th, 12th century onward in shaping this notion of the Tibetans but its social salience, so the, the traction that it actually had on the ground and its spread and historical dynamics remain under-researched. These issues form the topic of a research project that my colleague at the IKGA, Pascal Hugon, and I uh, intend to start the following year. So although this talk obviously builds on a prior research, in some ways it's also a springboard for what is to come. So I welcome uh, any and all feedback. Now I will start out with a summary review of theoretical approaches uh, concerning interregional collective identities before the rise of the modern age. So think ethnicity, nation, and so on. Uh, I will then sketch the lay of the land concerning this topic uh, within Tibetology. Uh, next, I will outline how state power and religion both played a pivotal role in the genesis of the notion of the Tibetans and argue how Buddhism was a pivotal force in sustaining and spreading this idea through a well-known myth concerning the origins of the Tibetans. I will also then discuss some of the variations we find in various uh, permutations of this myth, touch on its spread and link this to broader debates. All right, so as I mentioned, there's a, a broad interdisciplinary debate <clears throat> on uh, the prevalence of pre-modern large-scale uh, collective identities. And these debates uh, cover the fields of anthropology, history, sociology, political and regional studies. So although inquiries into this cluster of themes of 
ethnicity and race and nationalism and so on uh, cover a panoply of research perspectives. The historical field is still dominated by the so-called modernist paradigm. Now, modernists stress the recent advent of uh, such inter-regional forms of collective identity. And these approaches are primarily associated with the works of Benedict Anderson, Eric Hobsbawm, and Ernst Gellner. By and large, modernists uh, date the origins of such identities to the late 18th century and the rise of modern nationalism. And they locate their incipients in recent historical processes, such as the impact of the French Revolution, state building, industrialization, print capitalism, mass democracy, colonialism, uh, bureaucracy, and new communication technologies. Although the most influential works uh, such as these depicted here are concerned with nationalism as such, they of course link up with and have affected scholarship's understanding of ethnicity as well. So ethnicity too is regularly considered a modern phenomenon and certainly in its salient forms tied to European colonialism, uh, modern state-imposed ethnic classifications, and other modern dynamics. This modernist viewpoint obviously has much going for it, and formed and still forms an important scholarly counterweight to the power of nationalist mythologies. Yet, uh, the modernist approach has also been criticized for failing to address why such identities could so suddenly take flight, appearing almost out of the blue. Uh, therefore, what um, therefore what um, Anthony Smith called perennialist uh, approaches argue rather differently. They say that large collective identities were also a recurring feature of earlier eras as well, although they were by no means standard. <clears throat> Such scholars argue that these older identity constructs provided antecedents that could be picked up and amplified in the modern nationalist age. This scholarship therefore generally tends to highlight the role of myths, memories, symbols, and religion at large, rather than modern states in fostering supra-regional communities. Perennialist authors would embrace, for instance, the assessment forwarded by Richard Jenkins, who wrote in the context of Northern Ireland, that religion can powerfully pair institutional clout with cultural content, and that its ritual symbolization of identity constitutes an effective way to make collective identities matter to individuals. Now, um, a recurring matter of contention between these two strains of thought, modernists and perennialists, and this is particularly pertinent to the Tibetan case, is the pre-modern social relevance of ethnic origin myths that are only attested in written form. Modernist theory largely sees such attested narratives as literary or political fictions that were confined to written sources that circulated largely among literate elites. Um, <clears throat> these elites, they argue, were quite firmly cordoned off from local communities in general, or uh, so they tend to see pre-modern societies as depicted in this uh, in this figure as comprised of in Gellner's words quote small self-contained communities 
end of quote, that were marked by high degrees of social stratification and cultural and linguistic diversity. Modernists accordingly argued that such conditions stopped overarching identity constructs from taking hold at a grassroots level prior to modernity. And education and states and TVs and phones and the telegraph and so on um, allowed for more uh, connectivity. Perennialists, on the other hand, can accord such myths far more weight by stressing the fluid boundaries between written works and orality, clergymen's mediating roles between trans-regional literature and local communities, and the influence of widespread cultic networks, epic traditions, and pilgrimage. So in the figure displayed here, and I hope everybody can, can see it decently, even though it's not quite full size, um, the lines that separate um, here, the upper strata from local communities would then, um, for a perennialist, not be drawn so firmly. So, um, related issues that still need to be addressed within, still need to be addressed within Tibetology, also remain open debates in numerous academic fields with far longer histories than Tibetan studies. The history of the Arabs, for instance, has been subject to multiple monographic studies um, in the past two decades. And in early medieval European studies too, the historical social traction of origin myths is still being debated, sometimes quite hotly. Across other disciplines and area studies too, the question as to the extent to which uh, such myths and associated identities held sway among local populations poses a, quote, seemingly insurmountable empirical obstacle, as, as our get recently summarized the issue. Eric Hobsbawm too noted that gauging the traction of such supra-regional identity constructs is, quote, enormously difficult since it implies discovering the sentiments of the illiterate who formed the overwhelming majority of the world's population before the 20th century. Now, although we may never settle this issue to our content, the breadth and historical depth of Tibetan literature, which is still largely invisible in interdisciplinary debates, does extend a promising helping hand and can be expected to be of theoretical value beyond the bounds of Tibetan studies too. Not only are ethnogenetic myths uh, copiously attested in Tibetan sources, but various works also provide some insights uh, some insight into on-the-ground application uh, and usage of ethnonyms, and occasionally even yield insight into the oral dimensions of such myths. Now, as it has been pointed out by several authors in recent years, scholars of Tibetan history have been, historically speaking anyway, largely unconcerned with Tibetan ethnicity and the processes of its formation persistence and adaptation. So for instance, Sarah Schneiderman and Gerald Bosch and Oitman and uh, Joanna Bialek has a forthcoming article where they uh, address this issue. So the label Tibetan has therefore often served as, a, as an under-reflected analytic tool, which is both rooted in and also fuels presumptions of an um, quote, unproblematically homogeneous Tibetan realm, to cite Gerald Rush. Now, although some historical outlines of the appearance of Tibetan identity have been published, 
No study to date has forwarded any substantial analysis of the historical records developing notions of who the Tibetans are, where they were believed to come from, and how this identity was deployed and adapted over time and space. As such, historical research is still marked by a lack of appreciation for ethnicity as a flexible socio-cognitive process of classification, which accordingly can also undergo dramatic shifts over time. And this, of course, has been shown for the Arabs, the Germans, um, the Han Chinese as well. Now, among Tibetological publications that broach ethnicity, perennialist perspectives are mostly championed in historical work, which tends to emphasize Buddhist historiography, religious history, and mythology. Here, especially the work by Dreyfus, uh, Hatzot, and Kapstein may be highlighted, will stress the historical contingency of Tibetan identity and the role of Buddhism and early treasure literature, such as, such as the Kachamkakoma and the Manikambum, in molding it during the first centuries of the second millennium. Now, notably, these authors and many other historians have suggested that pre-modern Purpa identity was quite salient by describing the Tibetans, it's always in the historical perspective, a problematic singular, with terms such as nation or a people, political, po political cultural community in the singular, or proto-nationalism, the term originally coined by Hobsbawm. Um, this is a bit too simplistic, as ethnographers and sociologists have shown, and certain Tibetologists have also argued. And no historians have really sought to address the gap that surely separated literary myth from sociological realities or these myths developments over the centuries. Oftentimes, Tibetological studies of ethnic origin narratives um, have presumed the extant sources to preserve some ancient historical facts and have accordingly mined them for their documentation of older proto-Tibetan population dynamics. And this is something that Stein, for instance, did. And I would instead suggest reading such sources as proactive contributors to the construction, upkeep, or transformation of a plastic Tibetan identity, which was subject to quite or widely different interpretations by different people. Uh, recent ethnographic and sociological research on the Tibetan, pla on the Tibetan plateau has actually has reigned attention on the topic of ethnicity and is generally far more cognizant of its dynamic nature. These studies, however, even when including diachronic approaches, are largely focused on the 20th and 21st centuries and tend to stress the influence of institutions and processes typical of the period of the People's Republic of China. The arguably most extensive review of Tibetan identity was also written by a sociologist, Ben Hillman, and similarly takes a rather modernist state-focused stance. He stresses pre-existing local variety on the Tibetan plateau and the, quote, profound impact of Chinese state building, end of quote, in overcoming these differences in the 20th and 21st century. So, of course, partly due to Hillman's methodology and also partly due likely uh, to the modern focus of the volume in which he published 
It's notable that this article repeatedly mentions, for instance, the role of social media. It never once mentions uh, the existence of long pedigreed ethnic origin narratives. So this kind of goes to show um, the disconnect between some of the historical work and the ethnographic work that has been done. Um, now, historically, both the content and spread of Tibetan ethnic origin narratives were largely tied to the soteriological agenda of Buddhism, as well as to a lesser degree that of the Yungtungpun religion. Seminal renditions of a pivotal origin myth hold that the Tibetans were engendered as part of a soteriological scheme devised by the transcendental bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. In a bid to turn the unsettled Tibetan plateau into a Buddhist haven, he is said to have dispatched a pious monkey there, who subsequently became the forefather of the region's human populace. Such narrations, which are preserved in numerous Buddhist works, most composed from the 12th century onward, detail the subsequent rise of a people held together not just by descent, but also by a shared ethnonym, history, religion, territory, livelihood, mental, and even dietary predispositions. Their descent from a bodhisattva monkey, for instance, supposedly explains their natural inclination for Buddhism, while his partner, the bloodthirsty rock demoness, the Traximo, explains in some instances, uh, Tibetans love for meat. Such descriptions, of course, subsumed various populations into a single and coherent imagined community and may uncontroversially be called ethnic origin narratives. Therefore, early attested notions of the Tibetans uh, were girded to this narrative spread and to the fortunes of Buddhism itself. Judging by the strong foothold this narrative and the religion attained over time, Buddhism seems to have been a key facilitator of Tibetan ethnogenesis. And uh, Buddhism was also particularly important to this identity's maintenance and adaptation throughout extended periods of political fragmentation. Now, <clears throat> um, state formation and other political developments, of course, also played a pivotal role in this process of ethnogenesis, the rise of the Tibetan, so to say. Uh, of the idea of the Tibetans. The Tibetan Empire, much like the contain, contemporaneous uh, Arab one, uh, provided the initial impulse for ethnogenesis by spreading the old Tibetan language, uh, boosting trans-regional ties and contacts, and providing large parts of the Tibetan plateau with a shared political legacy. Its rulers' engagement with South, South Asian Buddhists also uh, precipitated one of the first extant origin narratives of the Tibetans, written by the missionary Prajnavarman around the turn of the second millennium. Of course, Buddhist monasteries and lineages also became uh, political powerhouses in their own right. And um, in keeping with Bourdieu's premise that uh, ethnicity fundamentally revolves around the political and symbolical struggle over how um, society is divided, divvied up into different categories. The influence of power brokers and political events and social agendas is, of course, of high relevance when 
analyzing uh, origin myths and their developments and changes. Now, um, despite political influences, it was primarily religious remembrance that provided the surface onto which the Tibetans would come to be inscribed over the centuries. Cultural memory of the imperial state and period, the golden age of later historiography, grew to be dominated by Buddhist historians after the empire collapsed in the mid 9th century. So in uh, important post-imperial Buddhist treasure texts, as well as in copious later works, uh, the Tibetans would regularly function as a foil to uh, idealized emperors who were now reframed as Buddhist kings of a transcendental nature. The populace here provided a hierarchical correlate to these divinized rulers. They, the, the Tibetans, were the field of action of divine rule. And this is clear from the fact that imperial pedigrees in sources were often prefaced by the genesis of their subjects. So this happens in the Nyam Chunjung and in the Kachan Kakulma and in numerous other histories. So you get the people and then you get the kings. Moreover, the, the status of these emperors as emanations of celestial bodhisattvas ensure that their perceived authority, aspirations and continued engagement with um, the plateau remained a guiding force. What Guntram Hatzot has called uh, a virtual empire. Uh, and it was this empire, this memory of empire, the memory of the state around which Tibetan identity was written. And this process uh, also has parallels in other uh, cultures and regions. So for instance, uh, Adrian Hastings has written about how uh, early Christian nations is the term he uses, uh, developed their identities around a succession of canonized kings. So religious remembrance of the state and its rulers formed a cornerstone of such early identity constructs. Now to appraise the role Buddhism played in bolstering the notion of the Tibetans, several questions arise. So to what extent did individual sources presenting this myth, such as the Kachim Kakulma, uh, attain canonical status? How flexible and innovative was this narrative in the hands of various narrators? How and in which context was it used and to what end? Now, to capture these dynamics and in recognition of the narrative nature of much of the available evidence, when we want to talk about ethnicity in a historical context, I will now turn to, um, I will now address the variety of these narrations, a variety that has sometimes gone unrecognized. Now, although this um, ethnogenetic myth, myth was already known about in the 18th century uh, and quite widely published on in the 19th century, no thorough diachronic study of it has ever been undertaken. In a piece for a general audience, uh, Per Kverne has very helpfully illustrated the variety of this myth's permutations, which he reports to be numerous. Uh, and Per Sorensen has compared the myth as preserved in certain seminal sources with the rendition in the 14th century Gerab Selva Melo. Yet, of course, this myth was not, uh, was understandably not his primary concern in his translation of that work. And he concluded that all covered narrations are more or less congruous, with one recension of the Kachem Kakulma being slightly more detailed. 
Um, this conclusion, when we look at more sources, this conclusion glosses over substantial differences between individual works and even between individual recensions of works such as, such as the Kachumkakulma, which actually differ quite considerably. Um, as might be expected from the wide social and geographic divisions of the Tibetan plateau and from the imagined nature of identities in general, this origin myth was not stable in form, uh, nor was it the only narrative about the origin of the Tibetans. And also other myths appear in numerous permutations with stories of the Tibetans migrating from ancient India or sharing ancestry with the Chinese and Mongols. Likewise, behind the singular renown of what is often simply referred to as the monkey myth, there in fact hides a plethora of variations. So there's a, a broad and elastic array of strands and motives um, that enabled local authors and agents and communities to project a particular self-understanding or concern onto the cognitive template of the population at large in the process uh, ch championing or challenging various uh, notions. So first and foremost, the influential Katsum Kakulma, <coughs> Um, which was composed perhaps in the 11th or 12th century, um, <clears throat> is, is a famous source that already contains this myth. And it is accent in at least three different recensions. Now, the literature has mostly opted for what is in the literature called Kachan Kakulma II, as the oldest or preferable edition. But preliminary research suggests that the oldest version of this myth is in fact preserved in Kachamkakulma III. Um, for instance, it's unassuming monkey bodhisattva in the third, um, in Kachamkakulma III, becomes a full-blown emanation of Avalokiteshvara in the other recensions, where also other elements are embellished and elaborated. Here then, even within the textual history of one work, we see the ancestor uh, being identified uh, closer and closer with divine Buddhist agency. Though many renderings such as these identify uh, the ancestral monkey as a disciple or even an emanation of the region's patron deity of Lukiteshvara, a relatively early, perhaps 12th century reference in the Basha, this is the Sabata Basha, paints this ancestor as a plain monkey and nothing more, as Capstein already pointed out. This straightforward rendition, of course, leaves little room for Buddhist teleology, and yet it appears to have retained some currency in Buddhist writings. It appears, for instance, in the Dok genealogy and in the Putin Chunju. In the latter work from 1322, uh, little stock seems to be placed in the narrative and there it's a brief passage, but there is no mention whatsoever of any Bodhisattva's involvement. Some narrations, as Kverne has also already pointed out, uh, identify the monkey by name as uh, Hanuman. So I'm forgetting to click through the slides because I can click through them all that easily. Um, yes. Um, Hanuman, who of course is a famous character from the Indian Ramayana epic. Um, there are also hybrid myths 
such as in the in the Hermann's manuscript, which combine the monkey with elements from different traditions. So in this permutation, the emanation of a bodhisattva and a rock demon as copulated, and then miraculously six eggs appear rather than six proto-beings, proto-humans, or proto-Tibetans. They're from these six eggs come the six classes of beings, so animals, hungry ghosts, and so on, with one egg giving rise to Sipa Yimungelpo, who is best known as the ancestor of man from Yungjungpungpo, rather than Buddhist traditions. So in this work, credit is given to deities from separate pantheons. Uh, and this permutation therefore already illustrates the sometimes porous boundaries between Buddhist and non-Buddhist narratives. Ancestors from separate myths could also be mentioned and even ritually invoked side by side in an inclusive spirit, including by devoted Buddhists. So for instance, in the Naktum Bedungra, this happens, um, but also in ancestor called manuals from Kam. So in the passage displayed here, um, I hope you can you can read it. Uh, in, in this passage here, which is drawn from a, a 17th century manual, we first find a reference to, quote, all the paternal or patrilineal ancestors, patsun, of Pe, such as the monkey and the rock demoness. Now, this is an obvious reference to the myth we are focusing on. On the following folio, however, we find mention of, quote, the patrilineal ancestors of the six original tribes of Tibet, Miu Dungjuk Patsun, and the prince Tinga and Zomlagen, Chilashing and Tenlapen, as well as the ancestor Trito Chembu. Now this prince Tinga, and I've written on this elsewhere as well, is part of a completely different narrative tradition of uh, Tibetan ethnic origins. And the three figures mentioned directly after him um, are the direct ancestors in this tradition of the Tibetans, the Chinese, and the Mongols. While the last one, Shito uh, Chempo, should be read as Chi, Chi with a Ka, uh, who is the father of the six original clans of the Tibetan plateau. Uh, then there are also works that omit the saintly monkey altogether, yet still include his spouse a red-faced rock demoness, and pair her with different figures to create alternative ancestral couples. This happens, for instance, in the Langipoti Seru, where she appears as the ancestress of only two of the six original clans. In other renditions, the couple remains unchanged, yet now their offspring suddenly includes various animals or even other ethnic groups. Yet further variety can be found in the myth's topographical setting, as Stein has already pointed out, the identity of the ancestress and her significance. So some, sometimes she's identified explicitly as an uh, emanation of the Bodhisattva Tara. And we find differences also in the nature and number of initial offspring, the names uh, and number of descending lineages, the presence of elements from the Ramayana and other plot twists and emphases that touch on various other topics such as the history of mining, um, the highlands geographic divisions and so on. Uh, furthermore, authors used the myth 
and recorded and transmitted and perceived them in quite different ways. So they may devote very long passages to the myth. For instance, in the Myung Chunjung or the Kachim Kakulma, they may ignore it entirely or swiftly gloss over it without personal commitment, as we saw Putin do, uh, explicitly attack it, as happens in the 15th century Bumpo history, Jung Jung Bun history. Uh, genealogies can use it to shore up political hierarchies to contrast the Tibetans at large and to set them apart from the rulers. And they may also, authors may also seek to academically sift historical truth from comparative readings. So the Paksam Junsang, for instance, dedicates in a modern book edition, five full pages to listing the various theories current about the origins of the Tibetans. Uh, some sources actively share a narrative of the monkey and the demoness with the community in a speech or they may subordinate the ethnogenetic episode to a bodhisattva's glorification. They may ritually employ it for epotropaic purposes, as we saw in the ancestor called manual just now. Um, and in one instance, it may even elusively be used to snub Eastern Tibetic language speakers. A passage by Bong Chempa associates the Kampa uh, with demonic beings, simple, violence and the lust for flesh traits that are often explained in origin myths by uh, reason of their descent from uh, the rock demoness, Simo. Uh, furthermore, 20th and 21st century sources often align the narrative, descent from a monkey, with uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. So this variety, both in usage and narrative form, already illustrates the plastic nature uh, of this origin narrative and the picture of who the Tibetans were and how this was made relevant to the author's time and particular uh, community and agenda. Now, despite the fact that there are numerous um, recorded ethnic origin narratives in the historical literature, this is of course not to say that the Purpa identity was necessarily very salient in everyday life. Um, it was not. So first of all, many sources detail inter-ethnic encounters among what we might nowadays call Tibetans uh, that confirm the emic separation of, say, Kampa from Purpa. Suzanne Bassinger, for instance, in her translation of Sonampeljen's biography, records how Kampa were looked down upon by the protagonist family. In other sources, figures from the East are regularly addressed as child of Kam, Kamchuk, stressing their difference from Purpa. Uh, the aforementioned poem by Long Chempa is another example. Uh, he seems to have seen Kampa as uncultured people, something that has actually continued uh, into recent times uh, in, many, in, in some circles. Now the inhabitants of Kongpo too are regularly separated from the Purpa in the sources and the Golok of Amdo, for instance, also had proud independent self-perception. Genealogies from the predominantly Pumpo, Yungjung Pumpo region of Kyungpo in Tengchen, in Chamdo, uh, forward completely different origin narratives. Uh, then there are also passages that separate Purpa from Drogpa. So the uh, Drogpa, the uh, pastoralist nomads, so then suddenly tying Purpa to a specific livelihood. So these instances make very clear that modernist 
theoretical approaches make a strong point. The notion of the Tibetans regularly excluded many populations that we may now, or that may now be considered to be Tibetan, Pukirik or Tangsu. Uh, and to a degree, these regional differences continue to persist to this day even. So here's, for instance, this is one point where uh, Dreyfus's article, Proto-Nationalism in Tibet, likely saw too much homogeneity, judging just by the literature that he had read, the historical literature. Uh, yet still the, the modern tendency uh, towards a broader geogra geographic inclusion of other Tibetic language speaking populations in contemporary Tibetan nationalism, for instance, uh, did not come out of the blue. First of all, to the best of my knowledge, genealogical traditions never included Kampa or Amdua um, as separate populations from the Purpa. Literate folk therefore seem to have considered them part of one and the same population, at least among lines of descent. Many community origin stories from the East, moreover, also trace back locals' descent to central Tibet. One biographical introduction from the 17th century written by a Kampa Buddhist uh, implies that populations along the Mum River in Kham, where the author himself was from, were Tibetan or Pukimilik. The genealogy contained in the autobiography of Hwaden Tashi from Amdo, written in 1742, ties in the village groups uh, or his village group's pedigree to the monkey-centered myth. And notably, this work starts out with invocations of the divine protectors of the six Tibetan proto-clans. And many more such Eastern narratives claim ancestry from imperial, imperial armed forces or from central Tibetan religious figures. Now, uh, the modernist argument could of course be made that these are all necessarily literary sources written by literate elites, literati with Buddhist agendas to push. Yet, of course, on the Tibetan plateau, uh, literacy was comparatively widespread and monasteries famously numerous. What is more, um, both in primary sources and in the secondary literature, we can actually find interesting references on matters of orality too. And the ties between genealogical literature and oral performance have also been illustrated by uh, Jackson. So one 17th century autobiography from Kham, for example, attests that a work centered on ethnic genealogies was actively memorized and recited to interested audiences. This um, is in the autobiography of Karma Chagme. The passage in question details the arrival of two leading figures from Peri and Martang in Kham, along with a servant, who request of the young protagonist that he explain to them the Miu Drachak. Now, this is a reference to the Unak Miyudrachak, which is still, still extant and contains detailed genealogical accounts of the Tibetans, Purpa. The author then notes he knew this material by heart, Lola Yu, and he continued to expound it to the guests uh, throughout the night. Now, the following morning, he was rewarded uh, with meat, gifts of meat by, his, uh, by the satisfied visitors. Uh, similarly, a mid-19th <clears throat> mid century report by Uc from Amdo 
near Xining documents how an unlettered nomad relayed an origin myth, an origin myth of the Tibetans, which he had heard from a lama. A written attestation of a speech from Huari in Amdo, which Matthias Hermans believed to be old, although unfortunately we don't know where the original document is, but he also notes it has um, uh, archaic spellings, he suggests. Um, and that also contains an origin myth of the Tibetans and is explicitly formulated, uh, written as a speech. Now the Unak Miyudrachak, which we already encountered just now, which perhaps dates to the late 14th or 15th century, claims to be composed of songs, lu, and also contains such a myth. Um, ancestor cult manuals, as, as we have seen, also regularly include Tibetan ethnic ancestors, uh, providing such traditions with a degree of ritual affirmation too. Um, and these appear in Buddhist ancestor called manuals, as well as in Jungjungbun ancestor called manuals of Tibetans. So such references illustrate that genealogical literature had an important oral dimension. And this relativizes the modernist contention that a cultural chasm sep separated local communities from the notions um, pushed in literary works. Pilgrimage networks would have further contributed to the circulation of such narratives. So notably the cave where the monkey ancestor is supposed to have lived is a pilgrimage site in its own right. And the cave in question contains wall paintings of the ethnogenetic episode, although I don't know how old these are. So such exposure would have given, would have even given illiterate folk uh, visual exposure <clears throat> to the story. And here maybe it's also interesting to know that the current Dalai Lama uh, told Thomas Laird that he himself had first come across the narrative through exactly such a wall painting. Um, so in this year, um, art historical research will shortly have more to say on this, and I intend to follow up uh, on that in the future. Uh, all in all, then, the material that I've shared with you uh, just now provides an important counterweight to existing reports that firmly separate pre-modern Kampa and Amdua identities from that of the central uh, plateau's Purpa. Uh, recently, for instance, it has been argued that, quote, in Kam and Amdo, there's little evidence from the pre-PRC period that peoples had a sense of belonging to a wider Tibetan community, end of quote. This impression, which surely has its justifications, is also a little too simplistic. Um, I certainly do not wish to say that these populations necessarily uh, always felt very close or had huge levels of affinity, or let alone that these conceptions would have risen to the level of nationalism. It certainly was not the case. But the modern, more uh, regionally inclusive uh, notion of Tibetan ethnicity and nationalism certainly did have antecedents in genealogical traditions. So um, if my current knowledge of the Tibetan historical literature uh, is any indication then, the modernist approach may oversell the innovative nature of a geographically more wide-ranging ethnic category of the Tibetans. On the other hand, published historical work on the topic 
tends to underestimate it. Um, although most research, uh, although much research must still be done, and I plan to do that, uh, it is clear, as Dreyfus already argued, that modern Tibetan nationalism and ethnic notions do not solely rely on invented tradition in the sense of Habsbaum. Cultural memory of common descent and shared political history was widespread and certainly spilled beyond the bounds of central Tibet and beyond the bounds of just written literature. Um, yes, that's it. Uh, thanks for your attention.